discipleship. John really, really pressed hard on that last week beautifully. And, and two weeks ago, uh, which this sermon today was supposed to have been last week's, and then John was going to preach a different sermon today, we, we looked at the, the big challenge, the second of the three big enemies we have. The first one is Satan, the second one is the flesh, and the third one is the world. And in our theme verse for this whole section of our series, The Mission of God, is that we all are being transformed into His image, the image of God through the Lord, which is the Spirit. I mean, the entire Godhead is involved in this process. And God's trying to transform us back into what He had created us to be. But two weeks ago, I challenged you to be careful. God has set us free, Paul says. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But then he warns us to be careful that we don't go back into a yoke of slavery. And there's two yokes of slavery that you can go into when set free by Jesus Christ. One is the yoke of slavery to the law. And that's what was happening in Galatia. Some of these Gentiles were being told, you've got to go back and keep the law. That keeping the law is what's most important. And for a lot of us, we grew up in churches that simply replaced the old covenant law with the new covenant law. But we still bound people under the law. I was raised like that. And that can become a yoke upon us. And then the other is the slavery to sin, which is the flesh. And that's what Paul is driving at in both of these instances. He says you don't need to go to either of these two extremes, to legalism on the one hand or to the flesh on the other. Now, one of the things that Paul is very aware of, as are the rest of the New Testament, is that Christians will continue to struggle with sin, the flesh, until we're made perfect in death. I remember asking a brother many, many years ago. I was in my 20s. He was probably at the time in his 60s, where I am now. And I said, how long do we have to struggle with Satan's assaults? And he looked at me and he said, you're going to have to ask someone a lot older than I am because I'm still struggling. And boy, how true that is. One of the things that you discover when you look at a, a very interesting epistle, the Hebrew letter is that we struggle until we die. At which point, sin has no more dominion over us. I want you to look at a verse. Uh, it's just a phrase in a verse that nearly all of us overlook. The Hebrew writer is writing to Christians, Jewish Christians, who are struggling because they're in the midst of a war with Rome. Their non-Christian brothers in the flesh, their Jewish brothers, are saying, help us out. And the Hebrew writer is saying, don't do it. Don't join into this war effort. You have been called to a different covenant. You've been called to a new covenant. And, and so instead of you know, protecting the physical Jerusalem, he says, you've come to a different Jerusalem. Notice what he says. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then he describes what we experience on Sunday mornings. I think so oftentimes we think our loved ones who have died are just basically non-existent right now. They're, they're maybe unconscious at this time. Some people believe in soul sleep. I'm not so sure we, even though we say we don't believe in that, we almost believe in that as far as practicality is concerned but because we don't think about what is our loved ones who've gone ahead doing right now. Can I tell you what they're doing? They're doing the same thing we're doing. 
I mean, notice the language here. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. We assembled today, but let me tell you, the number gathered here pales in comparison to the tens of thousands of angels assembled in the presence of God this morning. And notice, to the church of the firstborn, so many thousands, millions who have gone before us, you think they've quit assembling in the presence of God? No. They too have assembled in the presence of God whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all. But then I want you to look at this phrase because this is the one that's fascinating. And to the spirits of the righteous who've been made perfect. I think of my brother I think of my aunt that passed away last week, whose funeral I had last Saturday. I I think of my grandparents. I think of my my parents. I mean, the list goes on and on. You could fill in all the blanks as well. Of those who have preceded us in death. And the Hebrew writer says, you see, they've already been made perfect. Sin's no longer having an effect on them. Up until death, yes, sin's coming after us. But once we die, guess what? Satan's stranglehold over us is gone forever. And so, yes, we're struggling with sin right now. John says if we claim we're not, we're lying to ourselves. We're not being honest. Yes, we continue to struggle with sin. And because of that, Paul, going back to the text we looked at two weeks ago, says, listen, you've got a choice. And that choice is between the fleshly side of your life or the spiritual side of your life. And notice the last line in white before you get to the yellow. They are in conflict with each other. We all know that. We feel that conflict. We experience that conflict every single day. And so Paul sets in and he says, so that you are not to do what you want. In other words, you're you're set free, but you're not set free just to do whatever you want to do. Romans 8 is fascinating. Romans is a larger version of Galatians. Uh, If you read through the New Testament, you read Paul's letters, you get to Galatians, six chapters, very condensed, written early. I think it's the first book that Paul wrote. And, and, And about eight years later, he's going to write Romans. And basically what he does is he takes Galatians and expands it. And so he goes into far more greater detail on what it means to live according to the Spirit as as opposed to the flesh. But notice the same language. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But guess what? It's not to the flesh. Flesh leads to death. Instead, it's to the Spirit. But then notice what he says. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Fascinating statement. If by the Spirit... You put to death the misdeeds of the body. You see, if we all were just to pause, and and by misdeeds of the body, he simply means the sins we commit, the things that we shouldn't do. And we all could probably take out a little three-by-five card and begin writing, I still struggle with this sin, I still struggle with this sin, I still struggle with this sin. I mean, we could fill the card up probably pretty quickly. But what Paul is saying is is that if we, with the help of the Spirit, we can put to death these misdeeds of the body. But here's the question. How do we Christians put to death the misdeeds of the body? I think that's one of the things I was never taught growing up in the church. I mean, the, you know, the emphasis was obey the gospel, get them in the water, baptize them. And then, hey, you know, they're on their own. And, and we really weren't taught how do we continue this spiritual battle after we come up out of the waters of baptism. And here I am all these years later still fighting the battle looking for ways to help win in this war knowing 
that yes, it'll be death when I'm finally set free. But all of us can do a better job putting to death these misdeeds we all are guilty of. So how do we do that? Let me give you some very practical examples very quickly in in the time that remains. Number one, we need to realize that we've already crucified the old man. One of the things that Paul's going to do is he's going to say, listen, there is a practicality that we're living on that doesn't find fulfillment until we actually die. Okay? And so he says, listen, you're, you're actually going to experience two deaths. The first death is called the crucifixion of the old man. You turn over to Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ, if you are in Christ, you have crucified the flesh, whether you realize it or not. Now you go, okay, what is Paul talking about here? He's he's getting kind of, you know, real heady here. He is. But what Paul says is that when we are baptized, something amazing takes place. Look at Romans chapter 6. Again, Galatians, Romans, Galatians, Romans. You go to Romans chapter 6, and Paul says, or don't you know, which means that some of the Romans didn't know this, and so he's informing them, but he says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, who belonged to Christ Jesus, guess what? We were baptized into his death. And the point he's going to make is a very simple point, and that is when we're baptized, we're nailed to the cross with him. We're buried in the grave with him, with that grave becoming water. And then notice the last language here. And as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Coming up out of the water, we have been born again. Now notice some of the rest of the language Paul uses. For we know that our old self was crucified. Same thing he said over in Galatians. In other words, when Jesus was crucified... We were already being crucified, even though that was 2,000 years ago. We were being nailed to that cross as well. And so in baptism, we reenact the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and our old self, that self that belongs to the flesh, is crucified with him. Notice, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Now again, it is a yes, but not yet. We... We preachers say that a lot. On a practical yet level, have we died? Yes. Does sin have control over us anymore? No. Then why do I keep sinning? That's what we've got to notice. So how do we break this habit, this chain of sinfulness? How does our baptism destroy the power of the flesh, that old man? And here's where it gets wonderful. If you just allow Paul to kind of, you know, again, take us to that heady part of thinking about it. He says the first thing you've got to do is not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. He says, listen, when you come up out of the water, you need to make a purposeful decision. Notice the way he says it here. Do not offer any parts of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. By the way, this is all out of Romans 6. Starts with baptism. Come up out of the waters of baptism. What do you do now? The first thing he says is, quit offering your body as instruments of unrighteousness. Quit listening to stuff you don't need to listen to. Quit watching stuff you don't need to be watching. Quit thinking things you shouldn't be thinking. And you say, last, that's hard. 
I mean, I lived a whole life doing that, exactly. But that's where the process begins. And the way Paul basically says it is, he says, rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself to him. In other words, take those parts of you that you've been offering to the flesh and now offer to God. Easy? Oh, no. Not by any stretch of the imagination. That's why it's called spiritual warfare. But baptism into Christ begins a reorientation process. A focus of our lives. And that's the first thing you need to see. And by the way, what helps us in this process? This is the good news. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law but under grace. There's the key. You see, I wasn't taught this. Growing up as as a young Christian, I was taught that once you came up out of the water, you're still under the law, and if you violated the law, you would be lost again. Until you repented and confessed and prayed, then you'd be saved again. Until you sinned again, you'd be lost again. I call it the old baptismal security. One moment you're up, one moment you're down. One moment you're up, one moment you're down. good friend of mine who who comes from a different faith tradition, he and I were debating this when I was in high school, and I told him, you know, how how are you secure as a believer? Well, you're secure as a believer as long as you're not sinning. And boy, he looked at me and he said, that's not much security, is it? And he was right. It wasn't much security. And the reason is, again, we had drifted, at least where I was raised, into legalism. I wasn't taught that we're now under grace, which simply says... Guess what happens when you sin as a believer? God's grace is there. Can I give you a difference with a simple illustration? I don't know how many of you played Little League Baseball or or your kids played Little League Baseball. You know, I played one year when I was a kid growing up. I wasn't very good. You know, when it came to athletics, I was at the end of the line when God was giving out the gifts. I mean, that's just the reality of it. But I played one year, and then when June and I had two sons, you know, every good dad's going to, you know, make sure his kids go out for Little League Baseball. And so that's what we did. And, of course, we'd head over to Moss Wright Park, and we'd be over there late into the evenings, all day on Saturdays. You've done this stuff. And you've watched as dads sit there and watch their sons or their daughters playing in whatever the sports was. And, you know, when they're fixing to, you know, hit the ball, you know, they, they, their time for bad is coming up. And, and they strike out. Now, you've got two different types of parents. And if you go over there, you can see it happen all the time. You've got the parents that say, I can't believe you did that. You're no good. I, can't, I don't even know why I bring you out here. You ever been that kind of parent? I have. I have. I started out that kind of parent. My little four-year-old Rob, I was trying to teach him how to play baseball in the backyard. And he's four years old. Do you know how a four-year-old catches a ball? They put a glove on and hope that you throw it where, where their glove is. That's the way they do it. I'm serious. And I'm out there, and I'm trying to teach him how to catch a ball. And, you know, and I'm throwing them up in the air, and I'm throwing them on the ground. And he's missing them over and over and over again. And I'm like, son, what is wrong with you? And he finally took the glove off, laid it on the ground, started walking to the house. And I said, where do you think you're going? He said, I'm going in the house. This is not fun anymore. 
And I think of how many Christians, this is not fun anymore because we see God as that parent who's constantly judging us because we can't get it right. As opposed to the mom and dad that says, hey, great job. Great job. You keep it up. I'm reminded of the little kid, his dad pulled up, he was outside practicing, you know, and, and he had pitched the ball up, and he had swing, and dad got out of the car, and he said, Dad, watch this, and he pitches the ball, and he swings, you know, strike one. And he grabbed the ball, and he pitched it up, and he swung again, strike two. And so he grabs the ball the third time, and the dad's like, please, God, please, God, just let him hit it. And he pitched it in the air, and he swung, and he missed it the third time. Strike three, and he looked at his dad and said, ain't I a great pitcher? <laughs> I think sometimes we need to say, God, thank you. Thank you for that grace. It says, yeah, you messed up this time, but there's tomorrow. That's the God that we serve. And it's that grace that gives us the ability to keep going. The second thing that we design is this empowerment by the uh, gift of the Holy Spirit. Boy, I, I can't emphasize this one enough. And I know I speak a lot about it. But notice the last line here in Galatians 5. Again, that Galatians 5 text. Since we, keep, uh, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. He says, listen, there, there is something that lives within us. And the Spirit is constantly trying to move us a certain direction. Now, how do we keep in step with the Spirit. And this goes back to this incredible gift that Ezekiel talked about. You see, one of the things that, that the Bible constantly talks about is what's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant had laws, the New Covenant has laws. Old Covenant, Old Covenant had responsibilities, the New Covenant had responsibilities. What's the difference if we couldn't keep the new, why do we think, or, or excuse me, the old, why do you think we can keep the new? And the answer, the answer is the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel put it this way, I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you. Notice that language there, in you. You turn over to John 14 and, and here's this promise of the coming spirit. Look at what Jesus said coming straight out of Ezekiel. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Now, people ask me all the time, Les, what in the world does this indwelling of the Spirit, how does it work? And here's the answer. I don't have a clue. I mean, Nicodemus said, how, how does this work? And Jesus says, well, and then he uses the word wind, which is the same word as spirit. He says, the wind blows. You don't see where it's coming from. You don't see where it's going. But you see its effect. And he says, so is everyone born of the Spirit. How does it work? I don't know. But I see its effect in people's lives. I see its effect in my life. And that's how I know that it's there. And then notice, if you go back to Ezekiel, the result is, I'll move you to, be, uh, to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I'll move you. God says, I'm going to give you my Spirit and that Spirit is going to help you, which is why John calls it the Helper. The paraclete, the one who comes alongside of us to assist us. Philippians 2, a text that 
John helped the staff and the elders to work through for, for several months, a couple of years ago. But you have this wonderful promise of where Paul says, listen, you need to keep working. Notice the language there. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, you obey the gospel. Now, how do I take this new life God's given to me, and how do I make it blossom? He says, you've got to work at it. But when you work at it, notice what he says. Because when you work at it, God's working in you. And he's working in you to will, which means to think correctly, and to act, to do correctly. So God's, God's working with us. Now notice that, he's working with us. He's not going to work if we don't work in the process. You, you cannot have the Spirit affecting you if you're not keeping in step with the Spirit. It's that simple. And so it raises the question, well, then how do I know what the Holy Spirit wants me to do? And boy, I know this sounds trite, sounds old, but it's still the truth. Read the manual. This is a book the Holy Spirit has given to us. In which he says, if you want to know how to live your life, just read. Paul would say this, all scripture is God-breathed. That word God-breathed there is the same root as the word for the Holy Spirit. It's God-given through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God is thoroughly equipped. I'm reminded of my mother. My mother, I inherited a lot of her traits. Uh, being a talker is one of them. But mother had another trait that used to drive June just bananas. Mother would, would get something. Mother loved to sew. She bought her one of these fancy computerized sewing machines years ago. And it came in. We were there when it came in. It came in the mail. Mother gets it out. She sits it on the table. She plugs it in. And she starts hitting buttons. Anybody want to guess what my mother even never one second stopped to do? Read the instructions. And after a few minutes, my mother looked at it and said, this thing don't work like nothing like it advertised. And June looks at me and said, tell her to read the instructions. A lot of us refuse to read the instructions, which leads us then to number three, intentionality. Probably one of the biggest challenges of any of us as Christians and that is, we've got to be intentional in this battle of the flesh. Colossians 3, a passage John used last week. Colossians 3 says, since you've been raised with Christ, since you've been baptized, you need to do two things. Set your heart in the right place and set your minds in the right place. It begins with thinking and loving that which Jesus thinks and loves. It is that simple and yet that difficult. And then Colossians, Paul in Colossians 3, right after that says, and then you've got to get intentional. You've got to put to death, for instance. There are things you need to put to death in your life. And when I say put to death, he means execute. Old King James Version says mortify. We get the word mortician from that, the idea of death being there. But he says put to death. And what's fascinating is when you look at this list of sins here, these are sins that have to do with sexuality and money. And, and if I could just pause for a moment and think about how does Satan attack Americans today, I suspect sexuality and money is the two big ones. You look at the list up here. 
sexual immorality. The Greek word there is pornea, fornication, the old King James Version, probably a better translation. But sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, all those are the same thing. And we see it literally everywhere in our society. I mean, it's basically I'm going to be defined by sexuality. That's what's going to define me. And if you're not defined by sexuality, the other one is money. And notice the language here in greed. By the way, greed is nothing more than idolatry. And so here you have Paul saying these are things that are so powerful in a person's life that you need to get so serious that you put those to death. By the way, if you go to River Bend ever, River Bend is, is Tennessee's maximum security prison. It's also where death row is. And so when you go, one of the things you've got to decide is are you going to work on the high side or are you going to work on the low side? High side's death row. Low side are people who will eventually get out, even though some of them are lifers and won't. But one, one group is supposed to be put to death. The other group, no, they're just going to live a lot of years in prison. And that's basically the language that Paul's using here. Some things are so bad that they need to be put to death. They need to be on the high side. And here's the list of sentences there. The ones on the other side, notice the language here, but now you must rid yourselves... That rid has to do with the idea of like taking off some old dirty clothes. You've been out working in the yard, you walk in, and your spouse says, you're not going to wear those in the house. Take those off at the door. And we've all experienced that at one time or another. But notice that the sins that then Paul goes into are sins that have to do with emotions that are dangerous or have to do with sins of the tongue. Notice again the language up here, anger. Anger in itself is not sinful. But it can turn sinful really quick. In fact, James will say man's anger never does or works the righteousness of God. And that's probably true. But then notice, anger comes to rage. Rage then turns into malice. Malice into slander. You get into the sins of the tongue and filthy language and lying to one another. Now these are a little bit more difficult to get rid of because they're so kind of, boy, built into us. I mean, when, when I think of marriage, for instance... And I think of anger and rage and malice. You know, people will come for, for counseling and will oftentimes say, we're struggling with this, we're struggling with this, we're struggling with this. But the problem is, is that whatever the sin is or the, or the issue is that they're struggling with, oftentimes that issue has created profound anger in one or both of the partners. And the problem in dealing with the root cause is getting through the anger. I mean, anger that sometimes is just absolutely ferocious. I mean, I've watched as couples have sat in my office and just get into shouting matches of where I just have to back up against the wall and hope I don't get hit by something. I mean, you're like, boy, look at the anger that's built up, which is, again, part of the emotions that you've got to somehow work through. And so here's Paul and he's saying there's some sins you've got to execute and there's some sins boy, you just got to deal with over the long haul but you need to be intentional on all of them. Now how do you do that? Well, there's a lot of ways of doing that. Number one is intentionality. Number two is confessing those sins. James says confess your sins one to another and pray for one another. I don't want people to know my sins. Then you don't want to be held accountable. By the way, anybody who doesn't sin in here, okay, right? I mean, we all sin. 
And so, should we be surprised when we realize that, wow, you're a sinner too? Yes. You have sins you need to confess? Yes. You have sins you need prayer for? Yes. And that's why confession and prayer is so important. But not just prayer from your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul goes on and he says, since you've taken off your old self with his practices... And you put on this new self. Why? Because it's being renewed in the knowledge of the image of his creator. Very thing that we looked at in 2 Corinthians when we started. But it leads us to the last of these putting to death. And that is realizing that we still have that helper with us. The role of the spirit is quite amazing. You turn over to Romans and Romans says this. In the same way the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. And boy, do I need help in my times of weaknesses. I need help in saying to the Spirit, would you simply ask God to do whatever He needs to do in order to get me through this? You know, Spirit, I don't know what to pray for right here. I just don't even know how to address this. Would you please address this to the Father for me? I mean, this incredible gift of the Spirit that says, I will literally step in and I will intercede on your behalf that God will do in you what needs to be done to restore that image to His likeness. And boy, relying on that is so important. I rely on it more and more in my prayers because the more I pray, the more I realize I just don't know how to pray good sometimes. And I suspect you know what I mean. And that's where we begin. Next week, we'll look kind of on the positive side of this, and then we'll follow up in two weeks with John Micah preaching the sermon he was supposed to preach today. And so we're looking forward to that one. I don't know where you are in this process, but it may be that you're at the, a place where you need to say, you know what, I need to begin by obeying the gospel, to crucify that old man, to be raised in newness of life through baptism. If that's the case, we're here to assist you. Come together as we... St-